Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Silmarillion Stories, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our podcast for of Feanor and the Unchaining of Melkor, the eighth story of the Silmarillion. For this episode, we've got a special guest with us today, Maester Anthony from the Electric Boogaloo podcast. Uh, if you've not heard about that podcast, he's covering the entire series of the Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. R. Martin, chapter by chapter. We've gotten the opportunity to be on his pod a couple of times. He's been over with us. We talked about Andor, um, and we've got him today to talk about the unchaining of Melkor. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the origins of Feanor, the divisions arising within the Noldor, and the deception of Melkor before answering some listener feedback questions. And definitely send us some feedback. We save it up all between the episodes. You can email us to lotr at thelorehounds.com or visit us on our website where we've got a contact form or the nifty voicemail feature. Uh, we've also got a Discord server. There's a link in the show notes. We've got a fun and active community. We've got a dedicated Tolkien channel and channels for all of the other uh, shows that we're covering. So jump in there. Ask us your questions, talk with Marilyn and other folks. Uh, it's great. It's a cool place. All right. And stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes for the rest of June and a sneak peek at our coverage for July. So um, as you may or may not know, we've got a Patreon and we're on a little bit of a membership drive. We would really love to hit 100 subscribers by the end of July. And we'd like to ask your help for that. July 11th is our one-year anniversary, and it would be a huge boon for us to have your support. Um, as you may know, ad revenues are fickle, and the Patreon is really the best way for us to keep growing what we're doing here with this podcast. Uh, for subscribers, for as little as three bucks a month, um, you get ad-free and early access to all of our podcasts. We have got special live watch events. We've got other exclusive content just for subscribers. And... As a thank you to everyone who is a subscriber by the end of July, we're going to send you a special gift in the mail. We've designed an, a sticker that commemorates our one year of podcasting. This won't be available in the store to be able to purchase. It's only for people who are subscribers and who help us get over this. Um, well, everyone who is in, in July, no matter how many subscribers we have, but we just want to thank you, all of our uh, Patreon subscribers. So now that I'm done sounding like an NPR pledge drive, uh, <laughs> John? Well, I think it's time to bring in Anthony so we get to talk about a Feanor, and as you say, the unchaining of the Melkor. Unchaining of Melkor. I'm really excited. I'm really <laughs> excited, guys. Cool. This is one of my... I want you to know, before we get going, Um, for my money, 
Tolkien occupies very rarefied air. I'm thinking like of all the storytellers that have been remembered uh, in history, he's probably in the top 10 and he is my favorite. So um, this is, this book is very meaningful to me. Uh, I named both of my children after characters in, in this book. Did you? Um, Yes. I, I am, I'm a big Tolkien nerd. Um, but in a way that uh, I've sort of kept it pure from academic study, uh, like um, I just returned to it for love and um, and joy. I, I just I, I I refuse to taint it with with my academic pursuits. So I, I this is this is really exciting for me to be on the podcast. <laughs> That's great. Well, we're excited to have you. I mean, it's funny. We were just talking about succession on Second Breakfast the other day, and we said maybe we should call Mr. Anthony and get a medievalist on this because we are uh, into the me- medieval politics. And now we get to talk about all the uh, all, all the crossover with George R. R. Martin, but here yeah. with Feanor and Melkor and, and all this religious stuff that's happening here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... This is a read-through where I have read this a few times. David has never read this. Anthony, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with the Silmarillion? Sure. I mean, I always thought, I was always told that the Silmarillion uh, is like unreadable, you know, <laughs> thick <laughs> mythology. <laughs> And I was always told that it's like, oh, it's like reading the Old Testament. And so that was always, I was always thought, hmm, okay, I um, I probably you know, will just stick with Lord of the Rings. And then I realized one day, I was like, I kind of like the Old Testament. Like, <laughs> I kinda, <laughs> it's kinda got like, some bangers. It's got I, some hits. I, I kind of like Greek mythology. Why, why would I deprive myself of reading this book? And so I was probably in my early 20s when I first started reading The Silmarillion. And I remember reading all the way up until of Baron and Luthien and just shutting the book and thinking, that was the best story I've ever read. Mm-hmm. And just just ruminating on it for several weeks. In fact, I think it was a month before I went back to like finish the book because I was just so impressed with that chapter. And then, you know, I start reading the next chapter and I, well, of course it's, it's more of their story. <laughs> why, why did I wait? <laughs> but that to me that's still it's still sort of the uh, no no pun intended the sort of crown jewel of mm. of Tolkien's uh, world uh, that chapter of Baron and Luthien, um, but maybe a close second is is the story of Feanor. So I'm I'm really interested in talking about Feanor. We love Feanor, and if you listen to Reddit, he did nothing wrong. And uh, <laughs> here's the beginning of his story in earnest. Yes, that's right. That's We've right. been through the bigots now. We've gotten through the uh, the a little bit of the word salad that was uh, the last couple chapters. Uh-huh. And now we're ready to get the plot going a little bit. So why don't we jump right into it after we give general thoughts, because I almost skipped that part. David, it's your first time reading this. Give us your general thoughts. 
you know, from the the title uh, with the unchaining of Melkor part, which I love to say in a dramatic voice, uh, <laughs> I was expecting something more dramatic to be happening. Mm, yes, and it's a very I, subtle chapter. It is, yeah. and uh, the first my my first read through, we got I got to the end and I was like, whoa, what what happened? I just finished the chapter. I'm, I'm I wasn't expecting it. Right, and then I I reread it today. And uh, rather than trying to worry about taking my notes and getting every nuance, I just read it as one would normally. And I started to realize that there is a ton, as you say, Anthony, a ton of subtle stuff going on here. And there are, especially with Melkor and what he's doing. So it's, it's to me as the first timer, I could have breezed by this chapter very quickly and just moved on and not thought, uh, twice about it, but actually having slowed down a second and read it a second time, there's a lot of groundwork that's being placed here. That's right. Uh, so it's going to be interesting because you, you've set up uh, with Feanor that there are troubles ahead and then Melkor, you know, we think that, oh, you know, well, some people think he's cured of his evil, but really he's not. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. So you can feel the ellipses there uh, setting up for, for future conflicts. Yeah, and I think that there's something about this chapter that uh, almost has the dueling banjos thing happening. Oh, nice. I like that, yeah. Because <laughs> it's it's pretty clear that Melk, you know, the unchaining of Melkor is a, is a huge mistake. Don't do it, you know. Yeah. But you could argue that Feanor's origin story has as big of an impact. Yeah. It does. As yeah. anything else that happens. And, you know, you know, Tolkien's usually, w- when in comparison with George R. R. Martin, um, Tolkien's sometimes accused of not writing gray characters. You know, every, everyone in the book is either good or evil, and it's black and white, and, you know, moral absolutes and all that business. But Fanor, to me, is uh, a, a very interesting... Um, Subtle character, not entirely evil, not entirely, you know, virtuous, um, very, very, I mean, I guess you could look at this chapter and think, oh, well, this is the, you know, Melkor is the big baddie, but I mean, Fanor might have a bigger impact on the ultimate story. Fanor, you know, he, he is a great character, like you're saying. And I think that Tolkien was treating him more as a tragic character than as a villain Mm -hmm. because he has this whole thing about losing his mother, which clearly pulls from Tolkien's own life, losing his mother at a young age and feeling lost, I think, without her. Um, And you see that at the end, I I don't remember if they mentioned this in this chapter, but I I know it's been mentioned before. Feanor is going to come back at the end of time Mm -hmm. and and do, do the right thing. So we know that Tolkien wants him to have a sort of redemption arc in the end. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that Tolkien treats him more as a tragic character than a than a villain. He he clearly did a lot wrong, read it aside, but he I think largely was led down that path through grief and pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um something else that stuck out to me this chapter is just how cyclical it is. 
with the Sauron stuff in the Second Age. I mean, you have Melkor sort of befriending the elves and being all, oh, I'll help you. I'll teach you my ways. And I'm really your friend. And it just screams uh-huh. what Sauron was doing in the Second Age. You can see echoes of that. Uh-huh. You know, Sauron learned from him. Uh, and it's just funny how this, the whole evil empire in Tolkien has the same playbook, no matter who it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, when I was first rereading this for in preparation, I was thinking this little chapter is kind of the br- blueprint for a lot of other bigger stories that happen over yeah. the course of several books. And one of the things that occurs to me is that you almost have a repeat of the creation narrative. Hmm. Because, I mean, you know, the creation narrative is this great harmony. And of course, uh, you know, um, one of the voices of the Einar uh, decides to do his own thing. Right. And, and, and discord is created. And you almost have that with Feanor in this chapter as well. You know, he's, he's not, he, he wants to do his own thing. Uh, he's he's absolutely intent on kind of pouring himself into his craft, and it and it really does cause a discord. You know, he he does this at the expense of the relationships in his life. So that that sort of is a repeat of that particular theme. In addition to that, you have this theme that 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 bleeds into Lord of the Rings where Tolkien is very suspicious of these geniuses who craft these great works of, I, I would say, mechanism. Mm-hmm. Tolkien right. is is very suspicious of anyone who's crafting anything that's not natural. Yeah, Marilyn Pukila would call it the machine. That's how right. Tolkien is referred to it yeah, in his yeah. writings. Yeah, so he, so I mean, in in Lord of the Rings, it's like, well, weapons of war are clearly created by bad people for bad purposes, but even during the scour of the scouring of the Shire, you almost get a view of his critique on the what's happening in Northern England with the kinds of houses that are that are going up that just you know very standard brick, you know, brick boxes that are just a blight on the landscape. Right. And so I think throughout you'll find that Tolkien is very suspicious of the kind of genius that leads to invention. Mm-hmm. And I think he's also almost suspicious of his own genius. <laughs> mm. I think yeah. he's, I think he's, yeah. I think he's worried about, I, I don't think that, I think that he views his role as a creator of a world as being almost um, of having godlike power. Yeah. It's almost heretical to him. Yes. And it is, it is absolutely something that he feels uncomfortable with Mm -hmm. both because of his Catholicism and for other reasons. I mean, the, I mean, one one could say that the entire story of um, Lord of the Rings is that, uh, that power will corrupt you. And so you have to cast out power wherever possible um, and, in, and embrace uh, love or devotion or loyalty or uh, something else. But if you're driven by, you know, the, the need to grasp power, you'll mm-hmm. lose yourself. And they and, need to dominate, especially. That's right. And in this chapter we have, you know, we have basically the, 
the elves coming up with a written script. We have Fionor uh, d- deciding to craft these things of immense beauty that are that are not evil. I don't think that the Silmarils are evil. No, no, no. But but it's it's the ambition that leads to their creation that Tolkien is suspicious of and wants to critique. And I think in that way, you could almost say that Feanor is like the anti-Hobbit. You know, here is someone who's who's brilliant. He's he's driven. Mm-hmm. He's he's a he's a he's just genius, and he's yeah. and he's ambitious. If nothing else, he's ambitious, and this is exactly what leads him astray. Whereas, sort of, then when you enter, you get introduced to the hobbits later on. They are they almost have zero ambition, yeah. and this becomes kind of their superpower. <laughs> so I think that I mean maybe you should say it the other way around. Maybe it should be like like Bilbo is the anti Feanor, or yeah. you know something like that, because Feanor is really the epitome. He's like the archetype of the ambitious genius. Yeah, and quite a. Uh... Quite a um, Da Vinci of of mm-hmm. his time. I mean, he's got the Silmarils. He's also developing a writing system. I guess refining it, but still, that's he, he's doing quite a lot. Quite a lot in his days. He's a he's a busy boy. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we get a little bit into the plot while we talk about this? I'm just going to read off the first one so that we can discuss uh, Finway, king of the Noldor, has a child with his wife Muriel who gives the energy required to produce several children to to making Feanor. Uh, Muriel becomes a shadow of her former self, and her spirit leaves her body. So this is what I'm talking about with Tolkien really putting his own life experience in here, you know, losing his mother at a young age, feeling like, you know, his mother, I believe, homeschooled them, was very into... Uh, <laughs> His mother, his mother taught him several languages. That was his, like, bonding experience with his mother was was mm-hmm. learning ancient languages and 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 doing that kind of thing and i think he really saw her as his muse as the one who gave him everything he had every all of his intellectual curiosity and so i i really think he's writing muriel as this this person who gave everything to her son yeah and uh it's it's very sad to think of it that way but i think it's it's right well and also with that one i i i i'll let you continue with the plot here for but that particular was that particular point was reminiscent of to me when Sauron pours all of his almost his being or his essence into the one ring Mm -hmm. Tolkien has this thing sometimes where if some if you pour something into a something of yourself into the creation Mm -hmm. You no longer possess it. It no longer belongs to you. And it's almost like when Sauron does this with the One Ring, he loses something integral to him. It's not like it's it's a zero. It, it is a zero sum game. It's not like he just can just throw his creativity in the world and, and create things and have it had no have it had no expense on his soul or something. Yeah, I I got the sense with Feanor's mother that. There was something similar that happened. Like she, like so much of her went into her son that there was no, there was not enough left for her. 
Right. I really got the sense that there's a there's almost a parallel there. For strength that would have nourished the life of many has gone forth into Feanor. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. this goes into this concept that Tolkien fleshed out in side writings that didn't really make it into the Silmarillion uh, called the Hroa and the Fea, and that's body and spirit. And these are two things that pretty much every being's got, but they operate differently in the beings. You know, humans mm-hmm. are basically all Hroa with a little Fea. Elves are almost all Fea with some Hroa. And the elvish Hroa, which is, again, the body. So I'm just going to say body and spirit now, because otherwise we're going to get all confused. But the elvish body energy is what they expend to create children. You know, they have to, in order for them to create, they have to expend this energy. And that's why, uh, you know, they're limited in, like, you know, Feanor can only create the Silmarils once. Uh, Muriel can only create mm. a certain amount of children, or one if she's going to make a superpowered kid, apparently. And this is something that naturally fades over time as well. That's sort of the Elvis version of aging is mm. this body energy fades over time. Sauron on the other hand is one of the Maiar. So he's not going to fade naturally. So him pouring all his energy into something is deeply unnatural. Mm. Mm. But I, I like your analogy and I like how you're sort of linking the consequences there. Well, in addition to that, we have this notion with Gandalf that he doesn't just have this unlimited supply of fire right. magic. Right. Um, you know, if he, he'll get, he'll get drained, you know, if he, he can, yeah. he can light a, fi- a pine cone on fire or whatever, but <laughs> if he wants to do anything more yeah. than that, there's going to be a consequence to that. Yeah. He's also um, got he's he's been a little nerfed by the by the Valar too by making him an star and he's like don't don't play with fire don't do anything you don't need to it's sure. it's very they're all the the Valar are so skittish by the third age they don't even know <laughs> what instructions to give. <laughs> um, now I did I I think we should call out also that there is a bit of sort of Tolkien's old school. Um, I guess chauvinism that goes into this. Okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, like every now and again, he'll write in a really interesting female character. But I mean, what are the females doing in this chapter? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're good at needlepoint. Right. They're good at homeschooling. They're, you know, they're, they're kind of like, like Fanner's wife i think try like holds hold his creative energy in check so he doesn't go too crazy except uh, i i will say one thing that i really liked about nerdanel which is feanor's wife is it says that she's the only one feanor would ever go to for counsel right yeah so, and it, and it does call her uh, wise right 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 and she's tempering she she's the daughter of his master of the mm-hmm. smith that mm-hmm. taught him. And so I think he sort of imputes some of that respect to her. And then there's she, no doubt about that. And I would never call uh Tolkien a misogynist or something. I just think he's that got a little, he's got a little going on. Cause he was, you know, <laughs> born in 19, Oh, sorry. 18 something. Yeah. I never go too far down this path because the book means too much for me to me to sort of critique it on that level. But, um, yeah, it's 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 pretty clear that the women in this story are sort of props for the men. Yeah. Well, I, in this line I, I love uh, about Mariel, um, and after his birth, she yearned for release from the labor 
of living. You know, it's very dramatic. It's very melody. You know, the the languaging of it is mm-hmm. well, you know, and I think yes. Oh, it, I'm so heavy. I'm weary of exactly. spirit. I must rest. And oh. I think that that probably does. I don't want to do too much psychoanalysis, but <laughs> I mean, if you think about Tolkien's world, sure. um, you know who. Wh- wh- <laughs> Who were the women in his life and you know who who how did they function for him in his world? Um, you know, you mentioned his mother earlier. Uh and you know, so I, I mean I think a lot of a lot of sort of his worlds was shaped, his his worldview was shaped by these male friendships and these whale these male war companions and um, male students at Oxford and, you know, that he, he was sort of living in a world of men. And I don't think he actually ever met a woman. He understood. (laughs) Right. I I just, I just don't know. I don't know that he ever had, maybe he was just super awkward and he never figured it out. Well, I was just listening to, um, the, that's what I'm talking about podcast with Mary Clay, Uh who we've had on. And she just had Marilyn on, and they were uh, they did a podcast on um, the friendship between um, bl- name blanking um, what Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe fellow uh, C.S. Yeah, Lewis. Lewis. Yeah. yeah, between C.S. Lewis and and uh, Tolkien, and so they talked a lot about that society of fellows. And one thing that I, I was really interesting was that wherever. Tolkien went, he seemed to form a club or join into a club mm. of other dudes. And it was all of this clubby chummy stuff, you know, from, mm. you know, pr- you know, before the war, during the war, after the war, yeah. it was always a society of fellows and they would form these organizational units to, um, to discuss topics, to exchange views, to mm-hmm. uh, preview their art, whatever their art may be. And it was really those bonds, those literal fellowship as in male gendered mm-hmm. fellowship bonds that were constant and present in his life. Yeah, that's right. And he's an academic and, uh, th- it would, that was a world of men. It was yeah. Yeah. until very, well, very recently that it was a world of men. So it's true. Anyway, I don't want to critique too harshly on this point, but I did note that, okay, mother, wife, <laughs> Mother again, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I did, I'm not happy with the stepmother. It was interesting to have the kind of the stepmother plot. Yes. Yeah. So speaking of stepmothers, Finway remarries to Indus of the Vanyar and has mm-hmm. two more children with her, named Fingolfin and Finarfin, uh, which are not antidepressants, but instead elves. <laughs> Other elves comment that this was a poor decision, but the narration suggests Spabimi is in play. Are you familiar with Spabimi, Anthony? Uh, not until I reread this chapter, <laughs> I'll be honest. It's uh, shall prove but mine instrument. That is something from the music of the Ainur, and oh. it's where um, it's 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 from the Prancing Pony podcast. They've they've shortened it to Spabimi, uh, but Marilyn brought it into our world, and now we're we're going we're about? running with it. And yeah, I've been pretty uh, fa- I've been a pretty faithful listener to this podcast. So oh, I, that's how I think. That's well, probably how I learned it. Yeah, it's. Um, it's, it's if you're listening in the audience and you don't know it, it's it's when uh, Eru Arugula, we call him Eru Arugula sometimes, uh, when Eru Iluvatar is talking to Melkor and like, hey, you think you can you can just do evil? Well, anything you do that's evil will prove but mine instrument shall prove but mine instruments, Babimi. And so it's basically I'm going to turn all your evil to good. Right. 
So that seems to be the vibe with these half Noldor, half Vanyar children. Uh huh. Yeah. So, yes. All right. I did like, I mean, there's a very, very old, old, old retold story about the problems with the second wife. Mm-hmm. Um, this goes, this goes back to, you know, Babylon. This goes back to, you know, Hebrew Bible. Um, second wives in general in, in old stories are a problem because not just because of, who they are and what they mean for the uh, the children, but because the half brothers might not get along, and there also may be a question of inheritance. Mm-hmm. And so, I, what I think here, Tolkien's playing with this old old story that um, there's there's generally strife between brothers, and and even more so. If they are not, uh, if they are, if they're half brothers, right? Um, and so this is sort of this becomes this major rift. This becomes uh, one of the huge, you know, big points of tension uh, over the course of the next what three hundred pages. Yeah, and you know the Vanyar we're learning in this chapter, and they've been it's been discussed in a few chapters. They're kind of just vibing in Valinor. You know, they are so happy just being there, basking mm-hmm. in the light of the trees, weaving baskets and whatever else they're doing, you know, just just random crafts. And they're not really interested in the political game. And so I think that some of that rubs off on Fingolfin, Finarfin, and their children, mm-hmm. which is adding additional tension to them between them and the Feanorians. Because the Feanorians are super political and all vying for, for power all the time. And they just can't understand that anyone else would not be as hungry for power as them. Yeah, this chapter begins that it is noontide. It is the noontide yes. of the blessed realm. And of course, you know, you read that and you're like, oh, it's, you know, everything's going great. <laughs> well, <laughs> this can't. This can't end well, right? <laughs> yeah. In order for this to be a story, this the, it, it's not going to be new tide for very long. <laughs> right there in that construction, Tolkien sets right. us up for well. If it's noon now, mm-hmm. uh, in a few hours, it's not going to be, and That's that right. means something different. Yeah, and of course, really we're, nice construction. We're like three remakings of the world in already, and right. there's still plenty of conflict to come. <laughs> right, and uh, so here we are. But uh, I'll remind listeners if you're not familiar the. The houses of Fingolfin and Finarfin are tremendously influential. The house of Finarfin uh, yields Galadriel and Finrod, so you've you've got plenty of plenty of good uh, lineage going on there. So mm-hmm. I think that's part of Galadriel was clearly a, a favorite character of Tolkien, and I think he would have worked her into the Silmarillion more if he had had more time to write it, uh, but he didn't. But I think that this is part of him saying, well, you wouldn't have gotten Galadriel if I didn't write in this second mom here. (laughs) Right. Interesting. Interesting. So Feanor, we learn, is the greatest of smiths and learns to create jewels greater than those found in the earth. Again, you know, the machine getting something that's that's not quite natural. Uh, And he also refines the system of writing we mentioned. Now, one of the sets of jewels that he wants to make is the Silmarils out of the light of the trees. Mm-hmm. 
The whole concept of the Silmarils, how do we feel about that? I, like, I, I don't know how to place the Silmarils because we see a lot of derivative work from Tolkien. Mm-hmm. You know, setting up narrative structure, the trill trilogy, I guess you could say, you know, this this uh this obsession around having, you know, all these trilogy stories, um, lots of other uh, other things, but the these jewels that held the light of the trees, this is something that has always seemed to me very uniquely Tolkien. And I don't know where he pulled from from other mythologies. Or you know, and this mm. idea of capturing the light of the trees in these jewels, and then having these jewels be it, this uh, uh, object that causes all of this strife and conflict. Mm. Yeah, I, I've never known how to um, to contextualize them by placing them next to or around other uh, stories and and literature. And so for me, they they've just always been singular. Uh, and mm. I don't know what else to to think about. Anthony, when you first read the Silmarillion, what was your impression of the Silmarils, and how has that changed over time? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I've usually read them as it's almost like not just an artifact from Paradise. It was it's almost like interesting a a relic that brings that has a power. You know, there's some, there's some sort of, there's some, there, there's something about like the, the power that used to charge the universe Mm -hmm. is, is the, the, and the only thing that is left over from those days from sort of the garden of Eden is this relic. And so that's what gives it a value because it's the only thing left Mm, right uh, of something that we're never going to get back right right um a talisman yeah, in some yeah, way yeah but 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 almost like the archetype of that i mean i think mm-hmm. of the ark and stone as sort of sort of a almost uh everybody wanted it to be a silmaril but uh <laughs> well sadly no, but, sadly not <laughs> but it but it is a type of silmaril in in mm-hmm. the way that it functions for the story because it's the heart of the mountain Right. It's not just a right. fancy jewel that looks cool and everyone wants it because it's valuable. It's something that is that, that has almost cosmic power. Yeah. Um, and it has the the ability to sort of turn the heart of the person who wants it. The thing that I always found that was just the most fascinating thing to me about the Silmarils is that Melkor wants them, devises this thousand year long plot to get them gets them and as he possesses them they burn him yeah mm. yeah and even he you know he puts them in, in a crown and he wears it on his head and it's always causing him pain but there's they're so valuable and he wants them so badly that he just suffers through it i, I to me i thought i i'd never I was a young man when I read it, so maybe I hadn't read a lot of other things. But to me, that always stuck to me as something unique and brilliant about these things. Yeah. Is that there's something that you need, you have to, you cannot help but possess it, even though you know that they're going to hurt you. And in that way, I thought 
there's a little bit of the ring in the Silmarils too. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's, it's not that it's the holy light that's just hurting everybody. It's also just that it's the desire to possess and hoard the holiness and possess mm. and hoard the goodness of the Silmarils mm. that ends up hurting people. And that ends up causing all these wars and conflicts that plague the rest of this book. Mm. Mm. And it- when you see other characters choose to free themselves from that, tr- choose to offer it willingly, choose to do the right thing with it. They are generally re- rewarded. I'll, Maybe AR and Deal got a weird reward, but <laughs> other than that, I think they're generally rewarded for not trying to hoard the Silmarils. Isn't the light of the trees a proxy for the light of God or the? Uh, it's made by the Valar, right? The um, oh, so it's so, so it's the, not even it's not even Luvatar's from, fire. No, so this is this is made. Um, you know, we talked about the trees. This yeah. was made by a combination of Valar. So, right. but this, you know, it's all it's all the same cosmic energy, I would right. say. And this, they're pouring their their cosmic energy into the trees. They can only do it once because we're talking about, you know, you have a limited amount of subcreation energy, right? And that that's the one shot you got is to make these Silmarils, is to make these trees. Feanor also only has one shot to make the Silmarils, so everybody's mm-hmm. got sort of a limit to their creation power. But this is actually made from the holiness of that tree, whereas all the trees that come after this are are based on an imitation right. of the two trees. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Feanor, speaking of, he married Nerdanel, who has a tempering presence on him. Feanor and Nerdanel had seven sons, which is an unusually high number, and it shows sort of how great his presence was. Uh, the seven sons of Feanor, it's, uh, we didn't go for 12. Tolkien didn't go full biblical, but he did go quite a bit. <laughs> he went musical. He went musical with it. There you go. Uh, the, what's noted, too, is that Nerdanel imparted her sort of temperance to some of them. So some of them are going to be a little calmer and some of them are going to be fiery like Feanor. I almost think of, you know, it's funny. They, they put Feanor and Nerdanel together. It almost feels like he's the forge and she's the tongs, right? And she's, she's the, the cooling water. Uh, they're, they're sort of part of the same, part of the same forging process of making these children. And some of them come out uh, a little more one way and a little more the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is it? Uh, it says here, um, Nerdanel. I'm sorry. Nerdanel. Nerdanel. Thank you. I, I knew Nerdanel. I'm sorry. Nerdanel. You're messing me up now. Oh yes, I'm good at that. It also was a firm of will, but more patient than Feanor, desiring to understand minds rather than to master them. I thought that was an interesting line there. She was interested in uh, understanding and empathy. As opposed to you know dominating and right and directing. Well, we know. have a question and feedback, and I'll go more into detail there. But we have a question and feedback about elvish magic and how it works. And and to mm-hmm. my understanding, Tolkien's vibe with elven magic was not that they're really creating something generally, and not that they're really fundamentally changing the universe. It's that they are understanding the way the world works and working with it, not against it, not changing it into any shape. Sort of you know, singing to the waters, you know, 
really like lulling these things into working with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's more of what Nerdanel is doing in contrast to Feanor, who is hammering that stone, that Silmaril together. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's a, an idea in Tolkien's work that as a craftsman, you can enhance the properties that are already present. Um, and in other words, sort of bring out the essence of something. In other words, you're not really creating it. You're, you're coaxing it to do, to do what it, what it might, you know, something that it might not have done yet. Or there is the tendency to distort, right? So, Uh you know, the creation of, uh, orcs, for instance, um, is, is a distortative power. Mm-hmm. Right. You're t- you're taking something and you're making it less than um, it- its original intention. Right. Um, so are you are you working with Iluvatar or are you working against Iluvatar? I think I think Tolkien would think of the thinking think of it in those terms. Right. And Nerdanel, you know, I noted that she's the only one that Feanor really went to for guidance. I love this quote about Feanor, though. Few ever changed his courses by counsel, none by force. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You not mess with this guy. You're not gonna you're not gonna convince him otherwise. <laughs> yeah, you get the sense that, you know, he's you know, he's 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 a craftsman. He's known for being like the ultimate smith. But in that line, you almost like he's kind of a badass too, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Don't mess with this guy. You ever see the art of him? They've got he's got the long flowing hair and he's just mm-hmm. ready to kick ass. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen an image of Feanor that really captures the image that I have in my mind. Okay. Same with Tolkas. I I, I I I for some reason I always I always picture them differently and uh, I've never seen an artist sort of put what's in my head on a page. Tolkien, I always picture as riding in going, ha ha, the hunt is on, you know, just very, <laughs> very, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Brain yeah, you're right. It's, it's hard to do it. Yeah. yeah. Very muscle bound. Yeah. Tolkien is uh, also a character in this chapter. He is. He is. He gets to uh, seethe a little bit. Yeah. So around this time, Melkor's sentence runs out. He sues for pardon and it's granted to him. Nienna helps Melkor in this, but Ulmo and Tolkien remain suspicious but they do not rebel. And we get Tolkien moralizing a little bit here. He goes, those who will defend authority against rebellion must not themselves rebel. Yeah. Very after school special, Mr. Tolkien. <laughs> so, you know, in a Kindle, uh, I was reading this on my Kindle uh, and I've noticed this in some places that if there's a passage that is uh, highlighted by a lot of people I, in my yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it says, so I've got this little dotted line under that phrase, and it says 1,825 highlighters. So 1,800 other people right. have highlighted this oh, that's thing. And, and I wonder sometimes, too, like, is there a waiting going on here? Well, everybody else highlighted it, so I have to highlight oh, yeah. it. So now yeah, goes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, this must but be an important quote. <laughs> exactly. But I, I found that it was funny that that line got one of these, uh, you know, bonus highlights. Uh, so and it makes a it's a very relevant statement. It has some potency in our mm-hmm. modern political conversation right now in our, our our experiment in democracy. Yeah. It's interesting. And and Tolkis 
Tolkis like won't even be in the same room as Melkor, right? He's like, don't, don't even, don't come at me, bro. That's basically <laughs> Tolkis's energy. Yeah, Tolkis. And then there's another line about him that is, um, his wrath is slow to kindle, mm-hmm. but even so, he's also slow to forgive or something like that. Right, he's slow to forget. I think, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. He's uh once you once you get on Tolkis's bad side, you're not getting out of it. Yeah, he's yeah, slow to wrath. Three ages, Tolkis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what is that to an immortal being? You know? Uh-huh. You know? And to be fair, I mean, we've been making the case against Manway for quite a while now. I think it's debatable this one. I'm not prepared to say this was a fully bad decision to let Melkor go. Maybe maybe it was a bad decision to set him all the way free right away. Uh-huh. Uh, but he did promise a sentence and is he better than Melkor if he doesn't stay by his word? That's a question. However, I was about this with my wife last night, the, this, this whole concept, I think it's, a, it's almost a Shakespearean concept that if you are, um, the, 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 the king who is truly innocent of evil will not be able to perceive evil or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Macbeth. Yeah. That's, that's from Macbeth. The- yeah. Okay, good. I, I I was saying Hamlet last night, but I, I free from wrong. evil and could not comprehend it is the line in the book. Yeah, yeah, it's really and interesting. She was like, "Well, that's he's just naive," and I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there is something about there is something about that that's true. I mean, there are certain things that um, it's almost impossible to be free of evil, but if you were to be free of evil, what would that look like? What would it look like uh, a weakness? And I think mm. it, it for Manway, it is a weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he should have been a little bit dirty. Right. Uh, if he had been a little bit dirty, he might have been able to see what was going on. But there's a parallel here, of course. Because Sauron can't conceive that the Fellowship of the Ring would want to destroy it, right? Right. Because mm. it would. It was like it's like the last thing that to occur to him that the that the Lord of the Ring wouldn't want to possess it. And right. and knowing that that is the case, he then has control because once you put that yeah. ring on. You're mine. Yeah, yeah. I own you. Yeah. And that's his ultimate weakness because he cannot conceive of a different strategy. Yeah. To finish this thought about um, um, him not being able to comprehend uh, evil, uh, the, the line, the rest of the, the paragraph goes, in the thought of Iluvatar, Melkor had been even as he, right? So they were, you know, he, uh, mm-hmm. Melkor was supposed to be uh, sort of on par with him. And he saw not to the depths of Melkor's heart and did not perceive that all love had departed from him forever. So yeah, I think it's just buttressing your your point there, yeah. Anthony, that um, th- there is no concept here because it just, yeah, there's right. there's a belief in an absoluteness in something. And he's got uh, Iluvatar's song in his head mm. And he can't see beyond that pattern or that song yeah. of, of what well, was the original source. And Melkor and Manway were the only two Valar to receive a piece of every piece of Iluvatar's right. mind. Ah, just just a little bit. 
just a little bit was hidden of like the children and whatnot. But as far as things that the Valar got, each one got a different piece, but mm-hmm. Manway and Melkor <laughs> got the whole pie. Right. Right. <laughs> Uh, I love this. I love the, I love the the idea that Tolkien is actually subtle criticism. I I think it's very subtle, but he gets Tolkien gets criticized for imagining a utopia because the the right guy is on the throne, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you get if you just get the yeah. right king on the throne, he was a little bit will, of a royalist. Yep. Yeah, everything will be everything will be perfect, <laughs> be cool. right? right? But even then, I mean, Manway is absolutely the epitome the epitome of this, right? He's like the archetypal king figure. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows the mind of God. He's innocent to it. You know, he's pure. Yeah, you know, he's wise. And yet, even so, that that perfect archetypal king has a weakness that ends up wreaking havoc on on Middle Earth, basically. Right. Kind of like uh, Patty Cosentine's character in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. No, that yeah, the the House of the Dragon. He, yeah, he's almost he's almost yeah. uh, blind. He's almost intentionally blind to the weaknesses of his family right yeah, but I, I think it's interesting here that no, tolkien yeah. it, it's very subtle but i do think that he's criticizing this mythology that people um almost attribute to him yeah um i don't think he's i, I think that he's 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 a little bit more subtle than that yeah well you see the valar get more cautious through the second age and then the third age they they do have to learn from their mistakes because I, I, I think Tolkien would have said the Valar failed to properly combat Morgoth for, for mm-hmm. ever um, until the very end when they finally decided to you know rip off the Band-Aid and, and send him out to the Void. Mm-hmm. And so you know when we do the case against Manway, I do think Manway is largely a, a very flawed leader. Especially early in the First Age. I think, I think you're right. I do think that there's something about Tolkien's view of what to do with evil, it's not as easy as just to eradicate it. Yeah. You know, he yeah. he refuses to say that that was the right thing to do with Gollum, for instance. Right. Right? It's like, you don't know, you don't know his story. And, and uh, Frodo, I wouldn't be so quick to take away life if you can't give life. Right. And I think that there's something here like, I, what would you do with Melkor? I mean, I mean the, the easy the easy sort of answer would be like, well, just eradicate him. But he's an immortal being, so right. I don't know that. I don't. They know did that, have him chained, though, right? Like they had him contained. He, yeah, he couldn't break out. We know that he stayed there for three ages. He definitely would have. Could have. It's interesting because right. the that theme that plays in some superhero stuff in MCU. There's a yeah, uh, yeah. definitely themes of that. Uh, even Walking Dead had that with. Um, uh, Harry Dean or whatever his name. Uh, oh, what was his character's name uh, with the baseball bat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they were like, how, how, how are we going to, you know, deal with him? And they built a jail cell. And then what did that do? And then you had this Negan. Is Negan, it Negan. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, you had this guy whispering to people in the, you know, from the basement, right? Uh-huh. Hey, stay, you know, if you thought about this, if you thought about that. <laughs> so yeah. What do you do with Belcor? Right. What do we think about Nienna and 
you know, she's the Vala of grieving. How do we feel about her helping Manway, sorry, helping Melkor sue for pardon, helping him pray for mercy, basically? When, when I read that line, uh, so Marilyn uh, is a big Nina stan. Mm-hmm. And I instantly thought, well, I got to find out from Marilyn what she thinks of... Uh, oh, she'll um, write in right after this. Oh, yeah. She'll hear this yeah. and <laughs> we'll get an email straight away. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 it, was, it left me real uh, scratching my head going, what, what is going on here with Nienna? And, um, I have a good friend who's a lawyer. And I, I was teaching an ethics class and I had him come talk to our ethics class. And one of the students said... Now, he's not... My, my friend's not a criminal lawyer, but... He gave a good answer to this. My one of my students was saying something like, "How can anyone defend someone that who has done you know the, these unspeakable evils?" Mm-hmm. Right. And my friend said that at the end of the day, when the entire world is against you, at least one person should be for you. Mm. Hmm. And I, I thought that was a good answer. Um, you know, of course, I think that, you know, the, the job of the lawyer is a little bit different than the job of the, the goddess of grief or whatever. Um, <laughs> but there is something to be said for, like, that, that sort of counselor person that's like, I'm going to be the one person in your life who's not going to judge you for the worst thing you did. I'm going to be someone else to you. Mm, right. Um, so I, I, I kind of like that. Like I said, these are great characters. I, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I really think that these these are hard questions. Yeah, I was just thinking. I, I have two thoughts. We we just finished. Uh, we've just wrapped on Ted Lasso, and one of the things that we talked about is the Nate and Ted uh, storyline and forgiveness. And when you forgive somebody you're doing it not for them but you're doing it for yourself so that you're giving yourself some relief and some space Mm. you're not carrying around this sort of poison this chalice of poison inside of you and keeping you angry and and ruining all the other relationships and things that you have going on in your life but it also does something that it gives that person who you've had this conflict and who has done you some wrong it gives them space to experience grace. And if there is a space, because if there's a wall there, oh, mm-hmm. I hate you and I'll mm-hmm. never forgive you, then now you have persistence and, you know, resistance and persistence. Mm-hmm. You've got a, two, two forces pushing against each other. You've sort of got no choice but to resist, right? If you, exactly. have, no, if you have no way of moving forward, you're going to move backwards. So, so then suddenly you have this space to move forward into and you can then choose to take that step or not take that step, whatever that's, that's on you, right? That's your responsibility. Um, so I've got that thought running in my head. And then I've got this other thought of, of, yeah, as you say, in the criminal justice world, uh, my sister was, uh, 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 worked in family courts in, in, in family law, uh, but around this stuff where they were constantly wrestling with these questions of, you know, between parents and, um, uh, 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 care providers and mm. uh, social workers and the courts and the police and all of this stuff. And unless you've got somebody advocating for you inside of that system, the state has a terrible amount of power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and 
when the state decides to focus on you, <laughs> it is a huge, huge thing. And so you've got to have somebody who is checking that power structure and making sure that the, the T's are being crossed and the I's are being dotted and, and that. And the only way you can do that, it will not, there may be other ways to do that, at least in our system, is to have the adversarial system of the defense attorney. So another way to look at this is, I mean, it's pretty easy for us, sort of, we've got sort of a God's eye view on this. And of course, we know Melkor is the, the you know, Ultimate the black rule. enemy or whatever, right? Right. But what would be the greater sin to keep Melkor chained up, believing that he's rehabilitated? Mm-hmm. Or allowing him to go free knowing that he's still going to wreak havoc. Mhm. Um it depends I mean, on it depends on if you're going to do a, retribut- a retributivist view of justice or a utilitarian yeah, yeah. view of justice because if you go utilitarian of course you should keep him chained up. It's one being versus all of the beings in this world. Yeah, yeah. Who's going to suffer more? Uh that's that's right. tricky. Yeah, I guess and then I guess the way that- is like does he deserve it? Uh, I don't know. I guess the other way to think about this, I mean, the, the, the analog here, of course, is, is it a greater evil to make to let an, a, a, a guilty man go free mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. to keep an innocent man imprisoned? Right. right. Because Melkor doesn't let his mind be known, and he's pretty right. good at deceiving people. Right. You know, there's a few people who aren't deceived, but almost everyone is <laughs> everyone else is deceived, right? Right. Uh and or or yeah, and deceived to the point of it, they're enamored. Wow, this guy knows a lot and he right, can help right. us. And he's he helping them from us. You yeah. know, he's helping hey, them. He's he's cool. doing the the catch me if you can thing where, you know, he DiCaprio is still kind of a con artist, but now he's working for the good guys. You know? Right. He kind of comes comes across in that way. That, that is a good movie, by the way. <laughs> it's a <laughs> it it's really a great is. movie. Yeah. And it's one of these times where it's like, I don't, if I'm Manway, what do I, what do I think the greater evil is? I think in my view, I think, well, if he's, if he's still, if he's still got deception in him, if he's still got, you know, greed and narcissism, and if he still wants to wreak havoc, I'll just send Tulkas out there and round him up again. (laughs) Box around. We did it before. We will do it again. We'll just. (laughs) You know, I, 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 I do think that there's something about this that looks like Manway's being naive, but at the end of the day, it's not that easy of a decision. No, I totally agree. I've mostly just been raising the question so that we could have an interesting conversation. <laughs> so, so, but then that goes back to if you're going to be of your word and honorable and these things, and we said we're going to put you away for three lifetimes, you've served your three lifetimes, yeah, yeah. we can't go back on that and not be you. Yeah, and and not be against the values that we we state, and then it's a uh, okay. You've 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 served your time. You're released. Isn't a lot of of the to- of Tolkien's writing hinge on this free will question and having agency and choice in your life? I know there's a, a tension of, there. Kind of. It's a but, it's a little it's a little determinist to sometimes, but at times, uh, right. But then yeah. also free will is a, a big part of it. So free, how free you- will in Tolkien is basically, are you going to save your soul or not? Mm. I, I think, I think Tolkien would say mm. Eru's plan, which is God's mm. plan in his eye. Right. Eru's plan is going to happen whether you like it or not. 
Spiffing. The only thing you have choice over is, are you going to be part of it and go to the good place, or are you going to not be part of it and oppose it and then go to the bad place? But important thing is, is that you have that choice, that you've got to be able to sure. make that choice. And so if we can't give Melkor the choice to be good or be evil, right. then are we denying his agency? And does, right. is that a, is that, how does that jive with our values? I'm going to bring in Nienna again and just sort of where she's at as this goddess of grief, right? Nienna, I think more than any other Vala in the Tolkien universe, knows how something terrible can be for the good in the end. Spibimi, she's she's the epitome of Spibimi, right? I'm grieving something, but I, I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to heal from it and I'm going to have a deeper connection and a deeper emotional connection because of it. And I think that makes her say, and also, you know, we know that she teaches patience to Gandalf, right? She's exceedingly patient. That's one of her characteristics. I think she would say, you know, maybe he is still going to be evil, mm. but I trust that if we continue to do the right thing, like letting him out when we said we were going to, and then policing where we need to, that good will win out in the end. It shall prove to be but Eru's instrument, mm. and it'll work out because we did not sink to his level. Yeah, right. Mm. And so that's where I'm I'm sort of bringing in the grief part is maybe maybe this is going to be a terrible thing. Maybe he is going to destroy everything. But we'll take that grief and we'll make something beautiful with it. I, I, I guess what I'm thinking, I'm, I'm struggling with how to talk about the problem of transcendence. You know, Manway's a sky god, basically. Mm -hmm. And most of these gods are just out of the picture, you know? <laughs> you know, sort of this, this is all sort of trying to set the groundwork for, you know, the, the War of the Ring, right? Um, and eventually these they're going to fade away you know the, the, these got these these deities are going to stop being active agents in the world right um and sort of leave it to the elves and men to to try to do the kind of thing that you're talking about um and then of course then the elves are going to recede from the world and leave it to the men right and then the and, men will leave it for the hobbits, and the hobbits and the, will leave it for the, I don't know. No, the <laughs> hobbits do it. The hobbits get know, it done, know, right? <laughs> we can stop at hobbits, everyone. So there is something there is something about the fact that the, the, the design has already been finished, and now you, little person with little, little hands and little decisions, are you what are you going to do with the time you have? Right. Mm -hmm. you, you may be, you may be a fleeting blip on this, this large scope story, but you might make a tiny little decision with your life that can change the, the, you know, the, the course of a war. Um, I, I think that Tolkien really is attracted to that kind of story. Yeah. I think that's right. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. One more plot point to get through uh, before we let you go, Anthony. Uh, Melkor becomes jealous of the elves and plots against them while pretending to aid them. Uh, the Vanyar are disinterested. The Teleri are dismissed by Melkor, but 
Melkor goes a little Goldilocks, and he finds that the Noldor are welcoming to Melkor. They're just right in the middle. They're interested. They're not dismissive, uh, and he's interested in them, and they're interested in his teachings, but Feanor is not interested in Melkor, we learn, and uh, there's a great statement, I believe, that uh, it says, you know, uh, some people some people might say that Melkor helped uh, helped Feanor, but really, uh, Feanor was was not a big fan of Melkor. You know, that was all his doing. This is all elven propaganda. <laughs> it is. It is. It's no Melkor. Melkor designed the Silmarils, and but the the story that we've been told through the elven spin machine is that <laughs> he, that that Feanor had nothing to do, nothing to do with it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, so Feanor being opposed to Melkor right away, it's funny because it's almost, I think, that two people who are super prideful, it's it's almost like two people who want to be like alpha dog, not mm-hmm. getting along, mm-hmm. you know, whereas as other people are able to learn from each one and other people don't have beef with either one. These guys are like, I hate that guy. I hate that. This one. is yeah. This is what I was talking about with the dueling banjos. It's uh-huh. like the these two guys are almost the, the, like they're like oil and water, mm-hmm. and they're both they're both world changers, right? They're both they're both yeah. They're both. I mean, you could say that they're both chaos agents, but for very different reasons. Um, you know, they both have this massive impact on the story, uh, all, you know, for different motives and, and in different ways. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Even though Melkor is in it a lot longer than Feanor, the legacy of Feanor stretches maybe even longer than Melkor. (laughs) What's the, what's the line earlier here? Um, Oh shoot, where to go? The courses of Feanor would have been otherwise, and great evil might have been prevented. For the sorrow and the strife in the house of Finway is graven in the memory of the Noldorian elves. <laughs> That's a heavy statement. <laughs> well, and and for everyone who wants to give Feanor a free pass, um, if he would have just held his craft a little bit lightly, a little bit more lightly this might have been averted um yeah but of but it but it is it was sort of that guarded almost selfish singular focus that kind of kept melkor out of his business as well right yeah 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 feanor um you know made a lot of a lot of decisions that we're going to get to in the next chapter um, but they start here, right? It's yeah. just this isolation, this refusal to work with his peers, this refusal to take advice. Um, but then the one person that everybody liked and he was against, he was actually right on. And that's why he's such a complicated character is like, he did, he did get some things right, but then he got some things also so wrong. Mm-hmm. And what do you do with that guy? You can't really put him neatly into a box and. I like how you brought that up. You know, it's it's something that people like to talk about Martin's gray characters and how Tolkien doesn't have them, but he to- totally does. 
they're not as prominent in the Lord of the Rings, but they're very prominent in the Silmarillion. Well, and also, I mean, I don't know how much love Christopher Tolkien gets on this podcast, but and we love. I think that I think that the 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 naming of this book really weights the this story differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if this story was named like a history of the beginnings of Middle Earth and the surrounding territories or something like that. Right, right. Uh you might miss you might miss the importance of Feanor. Um Yeah. Uh so I, I don't know. There, there's something there's something seminal here. There's something some sort of general generative force here that really pushes the rest of the, the book going forward. So as far as naming the Silmarillion, I totally agree with you. You know, making you it, it sort of signals to the readers track the Silmarils. That's yeah. that's what's gonna be the driving force in this story. And I think Tolkien wanted to call it the Silmarillion when he was trying to publish it, because I, I don't know how much you know about the publication history, but basically he was trying to publish this alongside the Lord of the Rings sure, for a really long time. And finally, a publisher agreed to do it. And then he said, never mind, I can't finish it. And that's what ended up happening. But he wanted to publish it as like a two volume set of the Silmarillion, then the Lord of the Rings. This was the mistake Martin made. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> go on. He's, he started publishing all of the, the background mm-hmm. um, yeah, you right. know, histories of this, that, and the other thing. Um, he spent his, what is it, the Froa or the Hora or whatever? He spent his, his, <laughs> his, he spent his spirit out on the wrong stuff. I, I almost want to break into tradition whenever we say the Froa <laughs> and the Fea. All right. Um, sure. You know... Here's here's when I decided that Martin was probably not going to finish the books is when he said, well, if you asked J.R.R. Tolkien, he would have told you that the Silmarillion was his main work and he never finished that. And I was like, yep, he's decided not to finish this. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> Write it off. <laughs> well, I, I view this book as a gift. I think it, you know, sort of seeing it all put together, I, I feel like Christopher should get a lot of the credit for that. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, sure. uh, I, I, I think uh, the book is not without its flaws. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, um, it's in, it's in desperate need of an editor. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, and yet if you, man, if you stick with it, it's so rewarding. It's just, yeah. it's just some of the greatest storytelling ever uh, in this book. Agreed. Well, thank you, Anthony, for being with us here on this discussion of Tolkien. It's so nice to talk to you about another franchise. We've done Andor, we've done Game of Thrones, and now here we are with the Silmarillion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where can people find you? They cannot. I'm a ghost. Uh. (laughs) I cannot cannot be found. Um, But if you like sort of chapter-by-chapter rereads... um, Electric Boogaloo under the House of the Dragon feed. We're right now. We're going through Clash of Kings, and um, another amazing storyteller, um, George R. R. Martin. So yeah, um, that that's sort of the project I've been working on of late. Um, although in the near future, look for uh, my podcast covering the Apple Show Severance. Very cool. All right, we'll leave a link to that in the show notes. Anthony, thank you so much again for being here with us. Always a pleasure talking to you. 
Absolutely. So let's take a quick break, and then when we get back, we'll continue our conversation. We're back. All right, David. That was a great conversation with Maester Anthony. Uh, always a pleasure speaking with him. Very thoughtful. We always have such good meaty conversations when we have a conversation with him. I enjoy totally. it. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Uh, but for now, we have to talk to some other people because we have yeah. listener feedback. Would you we like do. to uh, read some of those? Okay. First up is a Lore Master Patreon subscriber, Eric F., who sent in two emails, not one, but two. Uh, his first email is uh, about um, a topic that came up from an earlier one where we were talking about Gilgamesh. Uh, Eric says, hi, guys. I may be late. However, my understanding of the pronunciation of the name of Gilgamesh's friend, as I've always heard it pronounce it, is as Enkidu, with the emphasis on the second syllable. Whether this is right or wrong, that's the way I've always heard it. And as a result, I've always pronounced it just FYI. Um, so yeah, I, who knows? I, I am a notorious, uh, um, uh, what, what do you call somebody who's bad at pronunciation? A mispronouncer? I don't know. I'm a, yes, I'm <laughs> Whatever a notorious you mispronouncer. So I don't know if I have the right syllable or not, uh, but we can go with Enkidu. For the sure. emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, Gilgamesh and, and Kidu are great Babylonian, ba- back to the Babylonian times, uh, uh, very er stories about uh, a number of um, mythological topics. So, yeah, cool. Well, thanks for writing in with that, Eric. So, Eric did uh, send us a second email, says, Hey guys, did some research on the possible inspirations of Tolkus. Tulkas, Tulkas. Um, I ran across the following, and just to give proper credit, it was written by a Quora user by the name of Meldon Tarnayan. Tarnayan. Yes. So this is a quote of a quote of a quote kind of thing. Um, Tulkas is a cleaned up version of Thor, and by cleaned up, I intend a version of the harsh and unforgiving North mythology that is somehow harmonized with Christian theology. So the Ayersers become biblical angels, utterly pure in their disposition towards good or evil and not stained with human defects as Greek and Norse gods instead were. So talking about Thor Tolkis, he has a physical prowess and love for strength contests. Also, he is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And he is terrible in his wrath, a primeval creature of natural forces who does not value weapons, unlike Thor, we must say. But giving Tolkis a hammer would have been too much, I think. Yeah, a little too on the um, nose. Uh, value and, or strategy and thinking in general. The similarities with Hercules are legitimate, but that is because the North mythology and the Greek ones have a con- common Indo-European source. They are branches of the same tree, and Thor and Hercules share many aspects, and they're probably the same original concept expressed in two civilizations very distant from one another in time and space. However, Tolkien, even being erudite in ancient Greek language and literature, took northern myths as his major source of inspiration. Found this interesting. Thought you might want to know. Eric. Yeah. 
Yeah, he did. Uh, the Kalevala, he was super into. You know, he, mm-hmm. would, he would always look at these at uh, Norse mythology and other uh, Indo-European mythologies. He wanted to read it. He would actually have like book clubs where they would uh, they would sit around in a circle and each read it in foreign languages, read mm-hmm. different different ancient poems in the foreign languages. And that was his little book club outing, which is okay. <laughs> an insane outing. Right. right. Uh, but you can totally see this stuff showing up in his in his writing. When we get to um, of Turin Turinbar, you're going to see a lot more Norse stuff coming through. I okay. guarantee you. And Marilyn will be there with us for that in August yep, she's 2024. Already pre- <laughs> she's already pre-claimed that one. <laughs> right, right. Interesting. So thanks for writing in with that, yeah. Well, to go back to this common source thing and the uh, strong uh, male figure who's into you know feats of strength and adventuring and all that kind of stuff, that goes back to um, Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Mm-hmm. Um, where Gilgamesh was a king and he was civilized. Enkidu was a wild man who was raised by wild beasts and then they right. became friends and Gilgamesh sort of um, uh, civilized him. Um, you got Samson in, in uh, you know, Jewish theology. Right. So it's going back to this uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, in my mind's eye, looking l- like person, you know, fit and very beefy and uh, just with with a real schwad of e, you know. Hey, I'm strong. I can do stuff in the world. Let me go out and run around and have some fun. So right. if that goes back to some common roots, I am certainly not enough of a scholar to answer that question. But I think right. Eric brings up some interesting thoughts. Yeah. So thanks, Eric, for writing in. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Uh, next up, we've got Tom S. by email. Uh, the subject line of uh, of the email was uh, an LOTR essay. <laughs> so buckle and, up. Right. Well, I'm not going to read all of it. It was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight paragraphs. Uh, we're going to stick to the salient parts. And Tom, just so you know, I'll write back to you on a couple of other points um, directly so that uh, we can answer some of the questions and things that you've said. But uh, Tom starts off, I'm a relatively new patron, but I've been following you both since the start, your background episodes for Rings of Power, Second Age, were perfect for refreshing my memory and getting ready for the TV show, which, incidentally, I just started a rewatch of. I then ended up going and reading, listening to Silmarillion audiobook it, books. It's one of my favorites, so I was really pleased to hear you're going through month by month. The Aina Lindale is one of my favorite pieces of writing ever! Exclamation point. There's um, something about the Aina Lindale that... It's just its own vibe. Mm. You know, when I first read mm. that, and and look, I'm not saying the Silmarillion can't be hard to get through in parts, but when I first read that, it just felt like I was transported to another world. Like the the description of the music of the Ainur is so visceral and so vivid that it just ah every time, every time it gets, it gets me. you. Yeah, you're getting you're getting got right now, I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, carrying on with Tom's email, I'm super excited for season two of The Wheel of Time. Oh, this is a slightly tangential, but kind of connected uh, to this podcast. Um, Excited for season two of Wheel of Time. Now we've got a release date and hoping very much that you two will be covering it. We are, Mm -hmm. and we will have full coverage. We're working out our strategies now, and we will announce those in due course. Uh, continues, I am currently rereading for maybe the 10th time. I'm impressed. <laughs> the, uh, over a million words. I mean, that's wow. a lot. Yeah. 
the series along with another podcast and have just finished book 10. Shout out to The Wheel Weaves if you guys are familiar with them. Is that a podcast you... I'm not familiar. I haven't I haven't okay. delved too deeply into Wheel of Time podcasts. Okay. I'm sure there are a, a plethora mm-hmm. of them out there. Yeah. Uh, would love to hear all of your thoughts about it. Uh, and uh, if you can sell Marilyn on reading one of them as well, I might overheat from excitement, but it would be <laughs> great to listen to. Maybe a season one recap? We are demanding. Here's my here's my thing about Marilyn reading one is if I tell her to read the first one, she's going to hate it because it's a Tolkien clone and Mm -hmm. it's not going to be as good as Tolkien. And she's going to hate it for that reason. And I won't blame her. I will Mm -hmm. not blame her for it. However, if I got her to read book two, I think I could sell her on it. Okay. Well, you got to read book one to get to book two. That's the problem. We know you're listening and we know that Tom is listening to your listening. So. Yeah. There you go. We demand an answer. That's what Tom says. All right. So, uh, relevant question for Lord of the or Silmarillion stories. You mentioned an earlier background podcast for Rings of Power about the idea of Fea and Hroa. I have read the Silmarillion about three times and Lord of the Rings a few times, but never delved deeper into the legendarium. I'm wondering if you could explain a bit more of what these mean, how they relate to magic, and how they relate to magic systems. Do the elves deplete or expend their fea by doing magic? And with their great axe, are the two the same? And does that relate to producing a child? It seems to be finite. Feanor being twice an example, creating the Silmarils was something he could not replicate. And when his mother gave birth, she used up too much of her spirit to produce any more children or even sustain her own life. Is producing a child for elves akin to magic? I'm now spiraling off into elven immaculate conception, but I'll leave that there. This may not be a clear answer as I've heard the term soft magic system used for Tolkien. I'm a hard magic system fan, hence Wheel of Time. Um, I'd be interesting to know Anything about Elvish reproduction and pregnancy, but I guess that's something Tolkien. I guess that's not something Tolkien would write about. You are guessing wrong. Mm. Boy, did he go into it! If you want to read more of this, by the nature of Middle Earth, which is the most recent, I think, of the posthumous books, and it was not compiled by Christopher. I think it was after Christopher's death too, but it combines a lot of unfinished writings of Tolkien and. Boy, did this guy go into every detail you could possibly want. I just actually pulled up the outline of the elf chapter that we did for the Second Age because I, I compiled all this from Nature of Middle-Earth. And um, so here's here's some details. So you've got the Hroa and the Fea, the body and the spirit. We talked about that earlier in this podcast with Anthony. But basically, to make a child, you need to expend some Hroa. And your row is always fading. So er- early in life is when you have to make a child. Otherwise, you're just not going to have the Hroa to do it. Um, anyway, so and expanding Hroa is basically the Elvis version of aging. You know, that's your that's your body fading. Your Feia doesn't fade. Your Feia is where it's at. And your Feia is what exists when your body fades and you you have that Elvis death. Your Feia is immortal. Um, it's your body that can't last forever. Now. As far as magic, having a child isn't magic. It's just they have to expend their energy to do it. And the elves generally can only have like two or three kids at the most. That's why 
having seven sons of Feanor was clearly a direct result of him having so much Froa from his mother in him. Uh-huh. Uh, as far as everyday magic, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the waters and things like that, that is different from the great works as you, you created that distinction. The great works like the Silmarils, you need to expend a bunch of body energy for that. As far as ordinary things like what Elrond does, that's not magic in the way that it's like I'm casting a spell. That's, as I was saying to Anthony, that's more of molding reality with reality. You are going with the flow of nature. You're not against it. You are seeing the deeper truth of nature and using that to manipulate it, but almost with it. It's it's this very naturopathic magic that Tolkien is imputing to the elves. Mm-hmm. And it's so that does not, to my understanding, that does not expend Hroa because you're not really doing anything. You're just vibing with nature. You're resonating with nature. Okay. Singing to the waters. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Pregnancy. He also goes into that. Uh, it is about the same as men. It's like three quarters of a year. But because elvish years are like 144 man years, it's like a 108 year pregnancy, which is crazy. Um, I, and, and I should mention, this is not all universal. There's there's debate within the writings of how deep you wanted to go into this ratio of of men to elves and, and years. So I won't say that this is this is absolute truth. But if you want to read all his different opinions on it, I would definitely recommend the nature of Middle Earth. There you go. There there is your answers. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them. And if if that was too much. I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's Tolkien. It's it's always it's always a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Thanks, Tom, for for writing in. And as I said, I'll I'll uh, email you back with a couple of other uh, things because you uh, had a few other questions that weren't necessarily Tolkien related. So that's all the uh, feedback we have for this episode. Again, if you've got thoughts, comments, questions, send them into us at lotr at thelorehounds dot com. Oh, hold on now. There's a thought, a final thought from Tom. That oh, made me oh yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Please. Why don't you do Ooh, the arugula forever? We need that on a t-shirt. I know. We're we uh we, we gotta get on our merch game. And I think Eru Arugula is is perfect for that. Yes. Coming coming after the uh, our one year, we'll yeah. we'll get we'll start working on that. We gotta we got plans. Yep. Hot hot takes for your hot cakes, coffee mug, <laughs> uh a Wugula t shirt. Yeah, it's coming. So Hang in there. Yep. Uh, but anyway, yes, LOTR at thelorehounds.com or head over to our website, uh, use contact form or voicemail. And we have a Tolkien channel set up on our Discord server. So you can talk all things Tolkien there. Uh, John, a uh, quick thanks to our Patreon uh, subscribers, if you would be so kind. Sure. So we've got our uh, our top patrons are our lore masters. Uh, we're thankful to all our patrons, but especially our lore masters who get a special shout out every episode as part of their benefits. So Martian, Cyrus, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter O.H., Bettina W., Adam S., Nancy M., Lavinia T., Duve 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H., Sarah L., Gareth C., Eric F., Matthew M., Sarah M., DJ Miwa, Joyce E., and Andra 
B. Thank you all so much. You know, we are currently going for our one year anniversary, trying to get to 100 patrons. We're at about 80 right now. Andrew was our 80th. And uh, what we're doing at the end of July is anyone who's a patron at that time is going to get mailed a an anniversary sticker that you can't get anywhere else. We're not going to put this up for sale yep. or, or anything. This is going to be yours for being with us early. That's yours right. for being an early adopter here on the Patreon yeah. uh, as a thank you. And so d- double check. We've been mentioning this every podcast, but if you do want it in the mail, double check that Patreon has your mailing address. I think most people do put that in, but some people don't. And if you don't want us to mail you something, it's totally fine. We'll send you an e-card. We'll send you an e-sticker uh, and you can right. print it out if you want. So, David, uh, would you like to talk about just a couple programming notes? Yeah, just a reminder, check out Anthony's uh, podcast, Electric Bookaloo. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes or just search for Electric Bookaloo. Um, that's a it really, he gets some really great guests on there. It's a fun thing. Also, we have Alicia, who you may have heard. She's uh, chimed in on some of our Star Wars stuff. She's now a full co-host on our MC Universe podcast. She has her own podcast that we're the proud uh, publishing sponsors for. It's called Wool Shift Dust, and it's all about the Silo TV show on Apple+. Plus. It's a very cool sci-fi dystopian mystery box show, and her and her co-host Luke break down every episode and uh, get into the books uh, and the shows. It's, it's great, so we're very happy to have her running that. A couple of things since we're at the end of June, we're going to be getting, we'll have our July schedule out pretty soon, but a couple of things to keep in mind for the future. We're covering every Star Wars film in order of, in story order. So we've done A Phantom Menace. What's next, John, is uh, you're the prequel trilogy. Yeah, uh, Attack of the Clones. Uh, thank, thank you, Attack of the Clones. But more importantly, Ahsoka is coming up on Disney. So with the uh, start of the Ahsoka TV show, there's a lot of background material, and not unlike the Rings of Power with Lord of the Rings, we decided that we would do a little prep uh, podcast. So we're going to be getting into who Ahsoka Tano is, what's her backstory, so that if you are not deep into the animated Star Wars universe, you'll have some context for what you're going to be seeing in that TV show. And we've got our fingers and our toes crossed that that's going to be a, a great show. I'm getting excited for it. So me too. Yeah. Every trailer seems to look better. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other two big things that we're going to be covering uh, this year are foundation, which is going to come back on Apple TV, which is I think inspired by the, the Isaac Asimov uh, books. I don't know that we <laughs> can say that they're an adaptation per se, because they've had to do a lot to change them. I got to say but, there's, I'm, I'm going to go off on a tiny tangent here. Yeah, there was a podcast I was listening to recently about uh, the Wheel of Time series, and it was with Brandon Sanderson, who wrote the last three Wheel of Time books. And he was saying that the, he sees adaptations as falling into two categories. One is the faithful adaptation mm-hmm. and one is the inspired by adaptation. Mm, and they're like both it. valid and I they like both it. have pros and cons. And he actually sees the Wheel of Time as somewhere in the middle. But I think you're right. Foundation is probably more of that inspired by. I like that. I think we'll have to add that to our shippy test and uh, we'll have a little bit of a matrix <laughs> there to be able to gauge some of these things. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's cool. Uh, and then lastly, I, and of course, Wheel of Time, we will be covering that in full once it starts to uh, air later this year. So, um, John, I think that's a, what's our next uh, chapter in the Silmarillion stories? Next chapter is 
Don't you have these memorized? Of the Silmarils and the Ooh. unrest of the Noldor. So that sounds exciting. Sounds like we might get some things happening there. <laughs> I know every every month we go, things are going to happen next month. And then we have like a we little do. bit more we set do. up because true. that's just the way it goes. But we're, we're rocking now. You know, the Silmarils are here. So we're rocking now. Don't yeah. worry. It's time to start. All right. Well, yep. thanks everyone for uh, sticking around. And we look forward to um, our next chapter. Until then. The Lorehounds Podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening.